This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner. This is podcast episode 237, and I am sitting with Ben Smith, head brewer for Surly, uh, upstairs at the production brewery. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me. We are recovering from quite a party <laughs> <laughs> last night here at the uh, Craft Brewers Conference. Um, yeah, it was something. It's been a really great week, and last night really felt kind of like the the climax. We still have a couple of days left of the Craft Brewers Conference uh, today and a little bit tomorrow, but uh, it's just been such a wonderful week having everybody here in Minneapolis for the first time for the Craft Brewers Conference right. um, and seeing so many friends. I mean, COVID, COVID was a long, long winter, uh, and I feel like we're finally coming out of that, um, and it just is awesome. For sure, for sure. Last night we were at First Avenue, the legendary rock club, and uh, Trampled by Turtles headlined the show. Um, Surly and BSG were the lead sponsors, and we were a small second sponsor on that thing. And Hopped in. Thank on you it. for that. Hey, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. We had a fantastic time. Yes, I'm a little slow today, so bear with me. I'm still <laughs> still recovering a little bit, but uh, sure. it, it was awesome. It was so much fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And thanks to BSG for sponsoring with us as well. Yeah, it was absolutely fun. Uh, we're going to talk on this episode about uh, IPA in general. We're going to talk about uh, unlocking thiols and use getting modern flavors out of hazy IPAs and juicy IPAs. We're going to talk about recontextualizing West Coast IPA. You guys have just launched an, a new brand of a not hazy West Coast style IPA, but also obviously as we were thinking about beers in that kind of realm now, we're always looking at them through a new lens of flavor, something that's uh, ref, uh, reflected through uh, you know the the flavor lens of where hops and where IPA is. Now we're going to talk about how you guys do that. Before we do that, for nearly thirty years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG and RAR Malting Company. Also, again, sponsored the uh, the show last night with us. The home of Fossil Free Malt, RAR's headquarters in Shakopee, Minnesota, is powered by renewable electricity. Malt houses and kilns are fed by an electrostatic boiler fueled on agricultural byproducts, much of which is waste from the malting process. By eliminating the use of natural gas, RAR Malting Company reduces CO2 emissions by 260,000 tons per year while filling 25% of the U.S. brewing industry's malt needs. Put the power of raw malt in your beer at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Um, before we get started, I want to remind you, if you are launching a brewery or your brewing planning, go to breweryworkshop.com. We've got a few spots left for our Brewery Accelerator event up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, always a fantastic time, and BSG also supports us on that event, so uh, lots of good stuff here. You know, we do a festival here in Minnesota. I was just here in Minneapolis about four weeks ago. I feel like I've been in Minneapolis maybe more than I've been home over the last four weeks, which is a little bit crazy. It's been a week in Chicago between those things. Anyway, um, fantastic beer city. 
love what you guys are doing. Ben, tell me, give us the background on you and uh, your arc through brewing. Um, so I started as a home brewer uh, out of college. I was actually working um, in marketing and sales for a, a theater here in town. So nothing to do with brewing. Um, and in college, I kind of started in science. I had a couple of years. I got through organic chemistry and said, this is this is not my thing. Uh, and moved over more to the liberal arts side of things. And um, so in my 20s, I was doing that and started home brewing. Uh, an ex uh, bought me a homebrew kit and I kind of got obsessed. I'm a little OCD at times. So I went down the rabbit hole. Uh, yeah. I started getting all the books, um, doing all the science. Um, you know, brewing multiple times a week, uh, just basically giving beer out because there's no way you could drink sure, that much sure. beer. At least I hope not. Um, and just fell in love with it. And that was kind of before um, the real craft beer boom, at least here in Minneapolis. Um, so there was only a few breweries around. But um, at one point, I just kind of wondered, I wonder if I can get paid to do this. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, which I'm sure a lot of people ask themselves that. But uh, it was it was a good time to, to ask that question. And I had spent some time uh, down at Town Hall uh, here in Minneapolis, which is a, a brew pub. Um, and Mike Hoops is the brewer down there. He's a really nice guy. Uh, so even as a home brewer, uh, he would answer a lot of questions. And I started asking him about... Uh, about the industry and what to do and he was like well don't work for free which was great advice because uh, at that time I think people were kind of being taken advantage of a little sure, bit sure and I also went to this um, new small little brewery in Brooklyn Center called Surly Brewing Company <laughs> and I was on a tour and uh, the owner Omar Ansari who's now my boss um, asked him kind of some other questions he said marry someone with health insurance I was like, also <laughs> like, good advice fantastic advice yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks Omar um so I just started kind of looking around to see if, if there's a job, and I didn't really find anything here. Uh, eventually, I found uh, an opportunity out in uh, Big Sky, Montana, a uh, little tiny brew pub up there. Um, there was a Minneapolis guy actually working out there at the time. Uh, his name is Spencer Anderson, who later would work for Surly, and now is uh, um, down the road at, at another brewery. Um, so I'd gotten in touch with him and, and the boss there and kind of flew out there and checked it out. So. Uh, basically, I left a pretty decent job, full benefits here in town, and moved out to Montana to work for ten bucks an hour and no benefits <sighs> in my late twenties. Um, but it, it was awesome. There's two of us that did just about everything. So I started washing kegs, uh, and I did that for months and months and months, and cleaning tanks and just doing um, basically all the grunt work. Right. Um, but that's that's good because that's that's a big part of brewing is 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 just cleaning uh, and, and and keeping up with uh, maintenance and all that stuff and. Uh, it's a good place to start. I think a lot of people, if you work in a kitchen, you start as a dishwasher. I think that's pretty uh, comparable. Um, and then work my way up to more cellar work, transferring beer, dry hopping, all that, and eventually up to the brew house. And it was a it was like a small 10-barrel system, but kind of having um, the ability to, to really just jump in and, and figure that out at a very small scale um, and just uh, kind of labor through that for, for a few years. Sure. Um, Gave me a good perspective, and I still loved it. And I think that that's key because I was working my ass off uh, for no money, um, basically living in poverty. And um, my partner at the time uh, had moved out with me. We didn't know anyone, and we were both just like working, 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 working. Um, and I was still homebrewing on the weekends there uh, in, in Montana. We lived in Bozeman. It was awesome, uh, yeah. especially in the summertime. We did a ton of hiking. Um, it was great. So around the same time, though, that I moved out there, I, I applied for UC Davis to be a part of their Master Brewers sure. program. And um, thankfully, uh, I had that little bit of uh, uh, science at the front end of my college education. So I had all the prereqs. I had a good uh, kind of sense for, for that side of things. Um, 
and I just had never found anything to to use it practically. And brewing is perfect for that, so it worked out well. And I I got into that. There was about a three year waiting list, um, so I just worked until uh, I got the call, and finally I did. And and uh, uh, then I left uh, Bozeman and went down to to Davis and went through that program. And that was really just a uh, an amazing, amazing time. So the, the UC Davis master brewers program, it's not a full degree. It's like a, um, certificate course, it's, but it's six months, but you're in there like 8am to five every day. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not really practical. It's all like theoretical. So you're, you're in the classroom doing science, um, learning everything, doing all the calculations, um, behind every facet of brewing from, from malt all the way up to, uh, packaging. So, uh, and all the in- engineering in between, and I got to um, the luxury of, of learning from from Michael Lewis, uh, Charlie Bamforth. I mean, yeah, yeah, some legends, absolute legends, and in the class too. Like it's it's great. I'm still in touch with a lot of people I was in that sure. program with that are in comparable positions around the country and in some some small and some large breweries, and it's a great network uh, of people that I reach out to all the time. Um, That's the unsaid thing about these educational opportunities: is that who you meet and who you start moving along with on similar career tracks can be just as valuable as the actual uh, in-class education. Absolutely. I think the same for, for college everywhere too. It's cool because if we're going to do a project, I can be like, oh, my friend Tyler over here uh, right, has right. done this before. I can reach out and we can talk shop or we can just hang out and have beers when they're in town for, for things like Craft Brewers Conference. I saw my friend Nate last night from Epic Brewing in San Diego. It was awesome just to, to hang out with those guys again. Sure. Um, so while I was doing all that, uh, I mentioned a guy named Spencer Anderson had been at that same small brewery in, in Montana. He actually moved back to Minnesota and was working at Surly Brewing. And, um, you know, I was just this guy working at a, a small brewery going to UC Davis a little bit, but I used to just bug the hell out of him and, you know, ask him questions and be like, Hey, you're, you're at Surly, you're a big guy now. Like, uh, it's, and always I was like, if there's any opportunities, let me know. I'd love to get back to the Midwest. I'm from here. I grew up uh, just a couple hours west of, of Minneapolis and, and lived in Minneapolis most of my adult life. So the goal is always to get back here. And at one point, he put me in touch with uh, Todd Haug, uh, my predecessor here. And we ended up chatting on the phone. And uh, Todd offered me a job. And that was before I'd gone to, to UC Davis. So I was still... Uh, a few months out from from going down there and actually turned him down. I said, you know, I really want this opportunity to go to Davis because um, I don't think once I move into a, a position or, or a brewery like Surly, I'll have time to do that. And which is which is funny. He, he called me back like a week later. He's like, well, what if you go to Davis and then come work for Surly? So I got to thank Todd and, and Omar for uh, giving me that opportunity. Uh, Holding the spot for you. And, and it was great. So I also didn't have pressure. I could be at school, knew I had a, a job when I got out of it because I also wasn't working while I was there. So I had to take out a pretty big loan just to, to right, cover right. expenses while I was in school, which is, uh, you know, that's what most people have to do. But having the knowledge that I didn't have to look for a job at the same time was was pretty uh, critical to the my success at that program. So um, taking on student loan debt to get a brewer's job yeah. is uh, <laughs> also kind of a dicey uh, proposition. Absolutely. But uh, again, Surly even then was was a well-known name, a great reputation. Sure, um, sure. They got named uh, you know, number one brewery by Beer Advocate around that time. And so I came back here and, and uh, you know, Surly just had a Brooklyn Center plant only. They had 20 some employees when I came back. Um, so I got a job just shift brewing at, at Brooklyn Center. And that was around the same time that they were planning uh, the facility that we're in now, our destination brewery. If you have not been here, I highly recommend coming down. We've got a, a massive complex with um, 
two separate restaurant concepts, an event space, a beer hall, and we have Festival Field in the back with bands like Ween, the National, playing 6,500 people come down here. Uh, First Ave uh, books all that. We're, uh, was the place we were at last night. Um, it is a beautiful, beautiful location. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to think of another beer hall that is quite as impressive as this one. It's 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 amazing. So I came on while they are still kind of conceptualizing this. Um and the goal is always to get over here and get my get my hands on the, the Rolex equipment that we're putting in. So um, got to come over uh, once we did build it and help, help Todd and Spencer, who's still here, uh, kind of put, put everything together, figure out how, to, how it works, you know, start running SOPs and um, work really, really hard, but for a lot of reward. And, you know, it's like getting handed the keys to like a brand new Ferrari and just letting us go <laughs> sure um, sure which was great so so we learned to brew on that it's a 100 barrel system here we've got a little 30 barrel sprinkman at the at the brooklyn center plant um and once we got up and running it, it was it, it's just been kind of crazy ever since so we saw pretty massive growth and then you know with covid the last three years obviously we've slowed slowed down a little bit but we're hoping to to rev that engine back up as as we come out of covid and um, yeah, it's just been wonderful. So when Todd left, I was able to kind of step up into my role now as head brewer, uh, and I manage both breweries uh, from a work production side, um, recipe development, all of our raw ingredient procurement, hop contracts, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been a while since I've actually brewed anything. Sure, uh, sure. So I'm really thankful to my brewing team. I got to give them a shout out. So um, Josh runs the the team over at Brooklyn Center, and Dave here at MSP, and uh, just phenomenal teams. And and it goes across production, our packaging teams, our lab, our warehouse. Those guys all are rock stars. Awesome, awesome. We're gonna start, uh, talk about um, you know again a new project you were working on with other half and. Uh, Phantasm. I'm going to talk about some of the creative ways you're pulling out some flavors there. And we're also, again, going to talk about, uh, you know, West Coast IPA because Furious, you know, is a, a core IPA brand for you with that kind of, you know, bitter West Coast approach. Um, but you've been uh, playing in that field and doing some creative work to, to create alternatives also in that field. We're going to talk more about that. But first, supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while. So why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment. To get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, as craft beer's most trusted point of sale system arrived is the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts, and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash cbb remember there is no i in arrived so ben let's talk about some of the, the stuff that you've been working on lately uh you know obviously this this new release with other half and, and phantasm uh you know is something that you guys have been playing around with and uh you know you're, you're exploring new flavors in ipa absolutely uh you know i'm a big big guy on, on innovation and trying new things um 
uh, to the point where I, I like I moved too fast for our quality department at times. It's like, well, let's change <laughs> yeah. this. Let's change that. Let's just try it. Um, so we're kind of always looking for the next cool thing. And obviously, other half uh, is a wonderful brewery. So we we've been talking about doing a collab for a while. And we actually went out to DC and brewed a, a cross between their their pastry base and our darkness called pastryness. Uh, they released that in <laughs> Fun. Uh, February, I believe. Yeah. Um, so while we were out there, we started talking about. Um, bringing them to Minneapolis and timing worked great to have it launched during the craft brewers conference. Um, and just thinking about what we could do. And, you know, at the same time, um, we'd been talking to, to Laura and Lance at Omega, uh, about their thialized yeast that they're, they're doing using CRISPR sure, technology, sure. which is pretty amazing. Um, so kind of and all listeners these, of the podcast, we'll get to hear Laura about that on next week's oh, episode. So wonderful. stay tuned for that. Sure. Yeah. So she'll drop a lot more, um, actual science knowledge uh, on, on everyone, which will be great. So it's, it'll be We've a perfect actually, follow-up. We actually have a full class, a video class that she's done for our online education program that uh, filmed a few weeks ago in Chicago that'll be out there for all of those all-access subscribers to craft beer and brewing. So just definitely keep an eye out for that. That's cool. And they're doing such amazing work there. And we're, we're just kind of starting to dip our toes in into some of the stuff that they're working on. But they've been a great um, resource and a great launching pad as we kind of just throw ideas out there. Um, so it's kind of serendipitous that we're having these conversations around the same time. So we, we, we use their Bonanza yeast for the other half beer. So, uh, and again, that was a big kind of, what do we call it? Uh, a Russian pastry stout, <laughs> just kind of silly, but that beer turned out great. And, uh, we figured we'd do uh, more of a hot for it. Can we call it Eastern European now? I yeah, mean, just, just for branding purposes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we figured we'd do it, try another yeast and we were going to use their, um, cosmic punch and uh lance actually reached out and said hey we've actually got this new r&d yeast it's it's like cosmic punch on steroids um so internally we've been calling it nuclear punch i, I don't know if they've actually branded it yet <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. a great name if you guys want it you can have it um so nuclear punch is kind of like just the the term we've been throwing around and um i think you said it had like 10 times the uh, the power to to kind of unlock some of these bound thials uh that are that are in the beer already um and also, at this around the same time, I started looking at the Phantasm, and it's interesting because I didn't realize that was Joss, and I've known Joss from Garage Project right. from previous um, uh, conferences. We, were, we did some work with uh, uh, the beer campus here in Nevada at the same time Garage Project was doing that too. So, again, kind of full circle, all these things kind of came together at the same time. So. Basically, it's everything but the kitchen sink in this beer. We just kind of threw a bunch of stuff together. I'm still kind of wrapping my head around, um, you know, thials and, um, you know, what we can accomplish uh, with some of these tools that we have. And, um, you know, the goal eventually is to figure out really how to manipulate some of those flavors. Um, it's kind of like when you first really start doing really hoppy beers. Like, for me, it was as a home brewer, but trying to figure out, like, how to actually manipulate that in a way that that uh, achieves what you kind of set out to achieve? Um, sure. And so I think talk to me about the the process of like plotting this out. You know, what did you guys hope to achieve? Because you know you have to have some sort of, you know, from a creative perspective, you have to have some goal that you're shooting for. But at the same time, you're also trying to figure out how these things work as you go in order to achieve that. And so there's some element of surprise and learning that goes along with that. So from a creative, you know, development standpoint, how did you, how did you start thinking about, you know, what parameters you wanted to, to explore and play with versus, you know, how you're going to make a beer that people also would want to drink? Absolutely. I think 
just in general, like from like my personal uh, approach to to brewing beer and creating beer is like I want something that's unique but also drinkable. Yeah. Um, so number one, that's that's my first step. Like I don't want to make a beer that no one's going to want to drink. Uh, my main metric uh, for for um, evaluating beer is asking someone if they'd have another one. If they say no, we're probably on the wrong track. So number one, it's got to be drinkable and. It seems super simple, but there's a lot of beers out there that I'll have someone be like, that's really cool, but I don't want to drink that ever sure, again. Sure. Um, and then, it's a smart commercial strategy because when people <laughs> want to drink more than one, yeah, it's probably good for business exactly. too. Exactly. And, uh, you know, on the other side of that, um, uh, the kind of the holy trinity for me uh, of brewing is also the quality, consistency, and stability. And since we were packaging this beer, all those things were kind of taken into consideration too. It's like, A, can we repeat this? And B, is it going to be stable on the shelf in a can for a while? Uh, it's got our name on it and it's got other half's name on it. So it's, that's an important uh, thing to consider. Um, but from a flavor perspective, this was just kind of, um, you know, at the time we we're on some calls with Sam and other half, uh, had our team on there, Bill Manlier, our um, VP of brand development, uh, works really closely with me on on, on working on these beers, um, and really just kind of bringing in, you know, want to do something with Omega again. Um, we got put in touch with Joss, so like we have the Phantasm available. We never used that other half had, so we were just kind of spitballing on on their experience using it. And uh, Sam had a lot of great advice because they've already obviously played around with it a little bit. And we just kind of went from there. We took a lot of people's advice. We talked to Laura and Lance uh, in terms of figuring out the malt bill, um, hopping rates, you know, which hops to use. Um, and we settled on uh, using some Mutuika in, in the mash, in the Whirlpool, and in the dry hop. We also talked to another supplier, uh, Hop Center with Eclipso, which has uh, got a lot of thial potential. Hmm. And, you know, we also, and then added the Phantasm in the mash too. And that was a uh, advice from other half, basically, because if you put it in the Whirlpool, it's just a bunch of crap that is still going to be in the Whirlpool later, where if you put it in the mash, you get all of the extraction that you need, but it stays, uh, the solids stay with, with the mash too. So, um, you know, it's just kind of putting those things together. And, and like I said, we didn't really have, uh, any expectation other than it's going to be interesting. Right. Um, it's going to be a, uh, a flavor bomb. Uh, I mean, the uh, Phantasm itself is derived from uh, Sauvignon Blanc grapes. Uh, so that's a flavor profile we expected, kind of the passion fruit, kind of, kind of that dank um, New Zealand um, grape note. Um, and this is dried skins from yeah, pressed grapes, right? Basically it basically just comes powderized. in a powder form. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's cool, and I just poured us some beer too. So sure. uh, we're drinking it right now, and yeah, it's it's got a really unique um, aroma. I get a lot of lemon on it, especially as it warms up, which is not something I expected. But you get that kind of tropical fruit note, the the passion fruit. Um, uh, there's, there's definitely some tropical candy exotic. notes, yeah, um, uh, exactly. like even a grape candy note. And I can definitely see those those kind of tropical passion fruit mango. Yeah, kind of thicker, yeah, heftier like fruit notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's let's talk about malt. I mean, when, when we talk about thiols, you know, it's easy to think about phantasm, and it's e easy to think about hops. But you know, really, there's a huge thiol potential in malt itself. And uh, you know, in fact, it's kind of fascinating. There are brewers that are now making no hop or low hopped beers and working on just unlucking that those thiols out of malt you know thinking about what kind of flavor stability that might be might create could be kind of interesting to see whether it's good but for you all you know what uh where, where did you land on that how'd you how'd you build a malt bill for this again we kind of just took uh, the advice of the experts so talking with lauren lance at, at omega they they've done a bunch of these beers and you know like should we go heavy with adjuncts should we do you know um 
Pilsner malt versus two row, et cetera. And they said they've, they've had a lot of luck just using Pilsner malt. Mm. Probably has something to do with uh, maybe the longer kilning um, degrades some of those precursors in, yeah. in two row or even any um, higher uh, uh, kiln malt. So um, kind of separately, we've also been playing around with the Ericlea malt from Vireman. Sure. Um, so we ended up using some of that, um, which is really interesting. It's a it's Italian-grown barley that's sure. then brought up to Germany to be malted, and it's got a um, little more bold uh, characteristics for a Pilsner malt, which which I really liked, and we figured that'd be a good kind of backbone for a beer that's going to be, you know, pretty heavy on the kind of the tropical fruit aromas, but um, to give it a little bit more kind of body and base, but still provide some of those balanthyl precursors that the, the thialized yeast could really free. Uh, so we, we did that, and we still added a little bit of oats. Versus going to something like, a, you know, Marisot or Golden Promise exactly. with some of that kind of English heft to it. Yeah, which that's kind of the first place I went. We, we, we use a lot of Golden Promise here. Furious has a... Has a you know, big chunk of Golden Promise as its malt bill. So we kind of started there, but then ended up transitioning over to, to Pilsner just based on some of those recommendations. Mm. Uh, it would be interesting to do kind of side by side and just change the base malt just yeah. to see what happens. Um, but I'm really happy with how the Ericlea uh, worked here. We did add some oats just to, to make sure we have a good little bit of residual body and I uh, want it to be a little bit hazy. Um, you remember r- roughly what kind of percentage of oats you put into something like this? I think we did. I think it was like 10% oats, and we had a little bit of wheat as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it, honestly, it's still pretty primarily um, just the, the base malt. Yeah. Uh, and yet you've still got a nice, uh, you know, hazy uh, a beer out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a bright haze. It's not, not super cloudy, right. um, but that's that's great. It's, 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 it's a really nice beer. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you go there, you mentioned you used Motueka and Calypso. Is that what you were going to say? Yep. And then we did. Um, that's also interesting, too, because coming from, you know, the IPA world, you're always taught um, more is better, right? Like, which is obviously not always the case, no, especially no. not here. Um, especially with the science that, you know, Shellhaver and others have done and, you know, Jason Perkins and some of these folks like yeah, looking at how there's definitely a saturation. Putting limit. more in can actually drop those things out that you, uh, you know, you work so hard to get in there. And, and that's definitely been the case with um, the thialized yeast. They, they recommend, you know, under two pounds a barrel for dry hops. So I think we did like, it's like one and a half pounds per barrel for the dry hop with a, you know, a little bit uh, decent. I'm not, I don't remember exactly what it was but a pretty decent uh calypso and motica in, in the in the whirlpool um do you remember the rough like uh you know bitterness or at least a calculated bitterness goal for this uh it was really low I don't, we actually didn't use any hot side hops mm. we did some mash hopping i guess so that's not 100 percent true but no sure. kettle no kettle hops in here huh. so we were looking for low to moderate bitterness so we're going to get a little bit from from the whirlpool but again we want it to be more of a fruit bomb and just have a a, a really low low bitter uh, aspect to the beer, but fruit still has a little bit of bitterness in it. Absolutely, you know? and you're going to get some of that too. I think from the 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 grape skins are going to add a little bit of astringency too with some yeah. tannic uh, pickup. So we kind of figured we get bitterness from other aspects to it uh, of the beer. Um, Do you have a general you know kind of place where you like those those hazier beers to still land? You know, I mean, idea. Yeah, I mean most of them. Most of our hazies, we don't do any hot side hops, or if we do, it's just, it's whirlpool. Yeah. We're doing a lot of um, so the calculations get weird since yeah. it's all coming in. And, Most yeah. of the time, we're adding hops right at the beginning of fermentation, and then again later during fermentation for for those beers. Um, so it's it's usually little to no 
hmm. actual IBUs, but yeah. we all know you're going to pick up some bitterness sure. just in general. Um, and that's been very successful for us. Do you have a way of like even mentally considering what that might be? I mean, I mean, again, there's, there's the software can't really give no, you numbers it's, for that. It's, it's, yeah. And, and it's just by feel. And also personally, like IBU is so, um, I mean, I want to say subjective, like yeah. darkness IBUs compared to like a, a Pilsner IBUs are crazy, but the Pilsner is going to taste more bitter than darkness. You know, it's just your base beer um, really plays such a part in what that perceived bitterness is. So right. I'm always more like my sales guys will ask me what the IBU is. I'm just like low, moderate, high. Like that's, that's it. <laughs> sure, like, sure. It's, it's a, it's one of those measurements that I don't take a lot of stock in uh, personally and we don't really measure here for I'm sure like, you're thinking about perception you know yeah, and, and finishing it's, gravity it's all about sensory at that works point. in conjunction with that which also yeah. works with like thickness and malt body and all those are, are various pieces of the equation that affect that perception of it that might be different from the actual numbers yeah i think the analogy my friend gary nicholas used was it, it's like going down a hill and if you're on a bike or in a car like that hill could be very different in terms of your perception of it right mm. um you could be going 30 miles an hour on a bike and you could be scared shitless you can go yeah. down in a car and it's no big deal, you know, and that's kind of how IBUs are. It depends on the vehicle that, that you're in, what, what that actually means to uh, kind of the flavor expression uh, and the, the perceived bitterness you're going to have when you drink that beer. Sure. I'm sure. Where do you shoot for finishing gravity on these? Uh, for this beer, we're, we're shooting a little bit higher. I think it finished around close to four Play-Doh, yeah. uh, which is right around where we expected it to and not having used this yeast before. Um, and it's even uh, Lance and Laura, it's a, it's a relatively new version of the yeast. So we, we kind of had a, an idea of where it would where it would end up, and and it, it it ended up pretty close to that. But I wanted a little bit of residual body and sweetness from uh, from the beer. I don't want to dry out too much. Uh, again, worry a little bit about how the phantasm and the hops would really play for that kind of perceived bitterness and and uh, potential astringency. But I'm really nice. It's got a really soft mouth feel. It's got a great finishing um, kind of note on your palate. It you really are just kind of left with. Um, uh, it feels like you just ate like a kiwi or a guava, you know, it's, it's <laughs> sure, awesome. Sure. Sure. You know, and had you worked with these hops before as you were trying to kind of visualize what this, how this flavor would, uh, you know, especially when, when you're thinking about how that phantasm element might work with these hop flavors, uh, um, you know, how did the team consider some of these things? Yeah, we've definitely been familiar with the hops. We don't use Clip so much, uh, but I've used it in the past a little bit. And with Tweeko, we've used here and there. Again, not a lot. We don't get a lot of that the, uh, that hop in. But, um, you know, we kind of understood what the flavor, pro- flavor profile was or, or is for those hops. But it, it was still an experiment. Um, that's kind of the fun part about collabs. It's, you're willing to little take some more risks in terms sure, of what you're sure. going to do. And, um, you know, with the... You know, you know it's going to be good. You just maybe not know exactly what it's going to be. Uh, it's not an approach I would take for, say, a new core launch for Surly, obviously. Sure, sure, like we are got to make sure we know exactly what it's going to be. Uh, but that's the fun part about collabs. You can, I mean, the literal name of this beer is Style and Error. It's, it's a pun because there's definitely some trial and error going on here uh, with, with the beard. Uh, just seeing how all these things will work together uh, is, is the fun part about it. And, and again, that's the beauty of collabs. You can take some risks, and it's it's about honestly more about having fun and hanging out with our friends and, and making something fun and just seeing 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 you know, what happens sure sure what do you do for water on these uh, hazier juicier IPAs we don't do anything crazy we don't have any real water treatment here so we just mm. adjust salts uh, you know by adding stuff to to our water kettle uh, uh, mash water etc uh, work kettle yeah. um, so I don't remember exactly the the sulfite 
chloride ratio we used on this beer, but we, we adjust those things um, just based on uh, a style, basically, on what we're brewing. Uh, we brewed this at our Brooklyn Center plant. Um, so our water source there comes from, it's groundwater, but it comes through the, the municipal plant. But we don't do any any true treatment. We don't hmm. have an RO system uh, yet. We're actually looking at those down at the show, um, which would be awesome to have. So, yeah. Uh, but we're lucky. Minnesota has great water. Um, yeah. So it's hard, but um, it's relatively easy to manipulate um, in the brew house without having to have a, a, a really hardcore uh, treatment plant. Sure, sure. So hop usage, you mentioned there's nothing, nothing, a little bit of mash hopping. I mean, in terms of overall percentage of hops, you know, how much generally goes into that, that mash hopping approach and, and why mash hopping in that sense? I'm, That's yeah. another, I mean, we've done mash hopping a ton in the past, um, but that was another um, uh, piece of advice from Omega and, and yeah. from Sam and other half that, uh, that you could just achieve a little bit more and get some more uh, potential precursors and, and free thials uh, in solution and with that process. And, and they don't degrade through the, the boiling process, then they don't volatize off. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure some of the aromatics do, but sure. um, uh, there's there's definitely some compounds that are staying in solution. And by putting them in the mash, too, you're you're avoiding putting things into the whirlpool, which is right. just going to cut into your yield at the, at the back end, um, which is great. Um, um, and for, for mash, I think we did like 11 pounds for, for 30 barrel batch. Hmm. Uh, and then whirlpools, I think we did about maybe like a, another pound and a half to two pounds per barrel in the whirlpool. Uh, but we used, the clips that we used was a salvo, so it's actually an extract. So mm-hmm. that also helps with uh, keeping some vegetative material out of the out of the whirlpool. Sure, sure. That's certainly a you know concern with everybody making very heavily hop forward beers that the, that vegetal character can, uh, and then, you know, the other benefit of the product like salvo or any of these flowable hop products is that, uh, um, you know, they're, they're going to, well, you have a centrifuge. That's not a problem. They're not going to pull out as much. You're going to get more yield out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, but they're also pulling that vegetative matter Absolutely. out of it. That doesn't give you the, some of those, that, you know, burny polyphenol piece of it. Absolutely. And it's a big benefit using the, the thialized yeast too, because we're using way less hops. Like it's kind of funny because in my head, I was still thinking we're going to have a really crappy yield because this is a huge IPA and like we, we had a wonderful yield on this beer because our hop load is actually way lower than, than most of our um, kind of big IPAs that we're making. Um, but you're getting such a great flavor expression and unique flavor expression from from just using that thialized yeast. Um, so it's another benefit for using some of these uh, a newer yeast. You can use less hops, still get really huge uh, tropical fruit notes out of the beer without uh, having to use, use that huge charge of hops in, in, in either the hot side or in, in dry hop. Sure. Now, when you whirlpool, you just you play out at, at uh, you know, straight off the boil or do you uh, cool that down at all as you as you do it uh for this we just went straight in the whirlpool we see a little bit of temp drop but we're not running through a heat exchanger at all um you know we played around with that a little bit but we normally don't do that i mean we just don't have the an easy way to do that with our system uh, currently um and honestly i have a little concern too because if you I don't want to overshoot it and then have any potential contamination issues downstream so that always makes me a little nervous um um, more from the uh, just stability side of things, sure. Um, but uh, we've had great success. Usually, just just going straight in the whirlpool. You get some isomerization that way, and, and, and we that. kind of plan for that. So yeah, I right. think as long as you plan for it and kind of expect a little bit there, and just use a little bit less bittering, um, we have a real nice, gentle whirlpool. So I'm not worrying about volatilizing too much. Yeah. Um, so again, as long as you plan for it, we we don't see a huge pickup in IBU there. 
Sure. Well, let's kick and talk about that, uh, you know, fermentation process then, especially as you're using this new yeast that you're not used to, you know, and, uh, you know, you mentioned you're, you're dry hopping in multiple stages there, um, you know, and exploring how to use this yeast at the same time. Um, you know, so Phantasm went in on the hot side, you know, up, up front, and then, yeah, you know, now you're adding hops into it, into fermentation. Talk to me about that process and, uh, you know, certainly thinking about timing, but also think, like as you all were considering it, as things are going, you, you have to be kind of figuring out what what is going on as it is developing and seeing how those things might be moving. At, you know, as fermentation commenced, definitely. So for this beer, we we just did one dry hop towards the end of fermentation. Um, for some of our, our other kind of more hazy um, IPAs, we'll do uh, at least two hop additions, and we found it really successful to add the hops basically at the same time we're pitching yeast so um and so they're in there at the beginning of fermentation so that's i mean from a production standpoint that's crazy because you yeah know, now <laughs> i mean if you're not planning on reusing <laughs> this yeast and you know it's not as big of a deal but uh, yeah you gotta have a different you, you can't crop yeast obviously right. but um let's that's what we do for like drips and drops is our, our core hazy and that's that's the process for that like we zero hot side hops and then we're adding hops basically um, when we're pumping the beer into the fermenter, we're adding the hops as we're pitching yeast. What's uh, the difference between doing it then and waiting until you've you know already kind of mostly fermented the beer and can pull some yeast off first? Um, and we've we've done it both ways, and we've we've done a lot of side by side comparisons. Like I'm, I'm really big on let's do like three or four brews and sure. just change one thing at a time and really study them. And I'm very very. Um, uh, lucky because I've got a great lab, a great sensory team that, that can actually do that sure. and, and give me that data. Um, and we did, I think we did 13 different brews before we launched our original hazy one on mosh pit, like years and years and years ago. And, um, we're also doing a stability testing at the same yeah. time. So is the haze going to hold up? Cause, um, in Minnesota, unfortunately, you certainly can't sell beer direct to consumer. We have to go through our distribution chain, and beer's got to have at least a 90-day shelf life for us to uh, to be viable. Because um, the last thing I want to do is someone to pick up a beer and have it taste sure, or look sure. like crap. So we actually put a lot of thought in the, the front end of that beer, and, and you know, it took us probably six months to really develop it. But we found um, we just got better flavor expression, um, cleaner beer flavor, um, and just general preference from, from doing that process. So we would add... You know, we did like basically day zero or we could add the first one, you know, day one, two, three in fermentation. And then, you know, obviously another one at terminal and across the board, everyone just preferred that first one. So whatever is happening in there, um, maybe a good question for Laura from Megan sure, next week. Sure. Um, whatever is happening during, whether it's biotransformation, um, how it's reacting during fermentation, you're going to get some volatilization during fermentation, which is what I was worried about too. Like we're going right. to lose a lot of aromatics if we're adding it that early. Um but uh, whatever's happening, it's awesome and it works. So uh, at least for us, and then adding that second uh, dry hop load, basically right towards the end of fermentation, close to terminal, um, has just been really successful for us. So that's that's kind of how we do our normal uh, core hazy uh, brands. Uh, but for this one, we, knowing that we we didn't need to use a lot of hops, we just did that one small dry hop. I think again, like one and a half pounds per barrel, uh, or somewhere between one and a half and two pounds per barrel yeah. uh, at terminal um, was, was all this beer had at the thyle and air with the other half. And, um, and again, it tastes like there's probably six pounds per it barrel It tastes like a much, yeah, a much heftier hop bill. Yeah, so it's, it's wonderful to use that low amount of hops. And apologies to my hop suppliers, you're not going to like that. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and get the same kind of sure, uh, sure. Uh, 
flavor profile with with just using a different yeast is is pretty amazing. Yeah, it kind of blew my mind to be honest. I, it, uh, it's one of those things like they say that, but I think I should use more. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. But but you really didn't. You don't really. You, you don't have to. So it's cool. Yeah, as as you're thinking about the way that the uh, the phantasm itself may have uh, impacted you know the progress of this beer and how those flavors you know developed. Uh, you know, how do you think about that versus you know, if it were just hops alone? I mean, it's really hard to say since it's just kind of a one-off thing. Uh, right. I was actually talking. This one you didn't do 13 brews of in order to. <laughs> yeah, I was talking with Josto and, uh, yeah. and Laura about actually doing that again. And uh, we're, we just purchased a little seven-barrel system from Mueller. It's on the floor at CBC, so a true R&D brewery that yeah. we'll be putting in, in our Brooklyn Center plant. So um, our 30-barrel system is great, but it's hard to really do a lot of that uh, kind of true R&D, R&D innovation sure. because we just don't have an outlet, and I don't want to. Uh, put that stress on the team trying to is, yeah. sell something that they don't even right. know what it is. So a seven barrel system will allow us to do a lot of that. So talking with um, with Josh from Phantasm and, and Laura from Omega about actually setting up some true trials to do um, very simple beers and again, trialing different yeasts uh, using some uh, Phantasm um, and any other products that those guys come out with. Um, and kind of in conjunction with that and, and, and also some, some hops and figuring out when and where to use them. You know, how does the yeast uh, affect the flavors? Um, you know, even things like oxygenation, like right. uh, manipulating those kind of things and really setting something up over the course of a year to just do a bunch of cool things and, and really see what happens and really study it. Because this beer tastes great, um, but I don't really know exactly what contributes what. Uh, so I'd love to deconstruct those um, those uh, ingredients and flavors and really figure out how to manipulate them. So in the future, uh, we can you know build things up much like we would with any other beer. With we're familiar sure. with hops, we're familiar with our yeast, we're familiar with our uh, the malt that we're using, and these are all kind of new products for me personally and for our team and for our lab. So there's a lot of excitement around just continuing to kind of wrap our heads around it and. And again, ultimately, so we can kind of control uh, our own destiny with with some of these new um, products. Sure, sure. Any temperature concerns in using this, or behavior of the yeast that you all noticed during that fermentation, and uh, or did you use any techniques in order to either improve extraction or to you know keep aromatics inside of the beer, not blow those off? Nothing. Nothing really out of the ordinary. We mostly yeah. just followed our normal practices. Um, this is a big beer. I think it was about. 19 20 plato starting um so with bigger beers like that we always do a second day oxygenation or you know within 24 hours before it really starts going uh just to make sure that yeast is happy again not using this yeast we just kind of followed the the, the advice of, of omega and i think we we fermented it at 68 or 70 yeah. um and uh, it worked great it definitely kind of creeped it, it didn't have a really quick curve um yeah so it was moving pretty slow. Um, so I was a little concerned for kind of the first half of the week, but it just kept dropping pretty consistently about a point a day on yeah. Play-Doh. So definitely different. Our, our, our house yeast is, is basically just English ale yeast. Uh, so we're very familiar with that. And this definitely reacted a little bit differently, but um, yeast counts uh, viability looked great throughout the, the, the fermentation. So we didn't, we didn't get too uh, concerned just kind of watching it go. And we also, maybe it'll finish a little high. Like, I'm not sure we haven't used a lot of these ingredients before, but that not necessarily a bad thing as long right. as long it's, it's, it's attenuated enough. Um, but yeah, it ended up kind of finish, finishing right around that four plate. I don't know on mark where we thought it would. 
Cool. You have a GC mass spec? Have you? I run wish. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. Okay. We don't. Just checking on where that lab is. I'm curious. You know, I, I would love to. You know, take some of these, especially these thialized pieces, and I'm, I'm maybe I can ask Laura about that too. I'm yeah, curious about what uh, you know, actual compounds. Yeah, know. we we got them some beers, so I haven't actually talked about to her about if they're going to be able to run that, or and I thought about sending right. some out just uh, to a, a third party lab too, just to kind of get some analysis there. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I even think the folks at Sierra would probably take it and look at it for us sure, if we sure. asked them to, because they've got they've got obviously a very nice lab. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious too to see exactly uh, what compounds are in there and what's really uh, you know providing some of those aromatics. Well, it's a tasty beer and it's a fun process and some some you know creative people involved. I want to let's switch some gears and talk about West Coast IPA and some of uh, this new school of West Coast IPA that you are engaged in, uh, which is your pure surly R and D. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brewhouse. To the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented, working with world-renowned industry veterans, and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, are you looking for the tools to make your next improvements in process and quality control? The Mettler Toledo InPro 8630i is the ideal sensor for combined color and turbidity measurements in loudering, filtration, and phase shift operations. Robust, compact, and easy to handle, it supports consistency in beer processing. The Intap portable oxygen meter gives you readings wherever you need them. It's flexible in production for verification, while purging, or for troubleshooting. Whenever you need it, it's your perfect helping hand. Contact Mettler Toledo today to find out more. Ben, we started talking earlier about West Coast IPA, and you know clearly you guys have a long history of making brash, you know West Coast IPAs with uh, you know a certain intensity and an unapologetic character to them. Um, you know, brand like Furious is is kind of a, a you know it's a core linchpin of the brewery. Um, you know, but you we, you've been working in that space, launching new West Coast, and you just did launch a new West Coast IPA. Clearly, as we all know, West Coast IPA, which has never gone away, uh, it's always been there and always been a significant seller for everybody, is starting to rise back up again. But yes. we're approaching it through this lens of flavor now, conditioned by all these other things that we know about hops and about process and about using yeast to create, uh, you know, at times a, a slightly different approach to the same kind of, you know, core underpinnings. Talk to me about, you know, then that creative process of envisioning a new clear West Coast IPA and then how you've you've thought about, you know, incorporating some of, of what's now possible in flavor. I mean, it's it's awesome. I mean, the the history of IPA over the last 10 years is is insane right like there's so many new variations of ipa uh and just aromatic hops in general and you know previous to that all of the true academia around hops was so focused on on alpha and bittering and um you know the right. explosion of of craft brewing and ipas and especially kind of the hazy realm and the the insane use of of aromatic hops as a resulted in a ton new varieties that are, that are amazing. Um, but also resulted in be a lot of new academia, new actual research. And like, you know, what shell hammer is doing in his lab, um, has been pretty amazing just to like kind of let us wrap our heads around the actual science behind it. I'm, I'm a big science process guy. I want to sure, know sure. 
why we're seeing this and 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 when you learn why then you can learn how to manipulate things too and you know west coast ipa was 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 awesome back in the day that's how i got into ipas right it's like this beer is awesome it's so crisp clean uh with this huge like citrus note and bitterness i mean i love bitter dry things negroni is my favorite cocktail of all time (laughs) sure sure um so I really fell in love with that, and you know, it's like good metal. It's like loud but melodic, yeah. and you know, there's a there's a piece to it there, and you can, yeah, exactly. So kind of having things come full circle, and and bitter, uh, clean beers kind of coming back. Right. Um, and again, they didn't go anywhere, but they were kind of um, taking a back seat for a while to some of the other uh, flashier, um, you know, hazy IPA that that have been coming out, but. Uh, to kind of go back to to the drawing board with that style of beer, with kind of the 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 knowledge from not just academia, but obviously just the the practical use of of different new hops, new hop varieties, new uh, hop products, which has also been a huge boom in the last uh, decade too, in terms of uh, the the cold side and and aromatic focused uh, hop additives and extracts and like the flowable products and stuff too, bringing that all back and kind of deconstructing and then reconstructing the the west coast ipa i think just is going to result in a in a better beer and you know the ability to to kind of build that back up with the knowledge that we have uh is a lot of fun and you're gonna you know i think so control chaos is our new west coast beer and it it is kind of old school i mean the, it's just um uh, amarillo cascade chinook uh which are pretty classic old school hops but the way we use them and where we use them has changed a little bit based on the knowledge that we've gained from again research and our own uh brewing experience and um the beers why why those hops and uh and when you say that process of using them has changed what are what are some of those parameters that you started thinking about to to tweak to to get that expression you want from them you know and it's maybe i'm just being naive but back then you just Add, add hops right. and dry hop, just dump them in the top, walk away, sure. right? And, 60 and minute, cool. 30 minute, 15, yeah. 10, you know, like it was just standard hot side hop additions, right? Yep. And now we're thinking about bitterness in a different way where we want a round, more round bitterness that integrates a little bit better in the flavor on that. And so, you know, again, how do you think about like, you know, taking that, like having the intensity, but rounding the edge on that so that it, that it feels good and, uh, you know, becomes more subtle and a little and less like assaulting, just more strong but uh, but gentle yeah so kind of to to start uh why those hops um i just love those hops a lot and and sure, um, sure. we actually did a ton of um different hop blends when we were working on hazies back in those 13 brews that we did sure <laughs> sure um and uh especially like the amarillo cascade blend uh, we had some other hops in there too but like i really like those two together and the chinook i think really kind of gives a little more punch as well um, so I guess also we have those hops in inventory. Um, sure. Uh, so it's a little bit of, um, you know, making sure we're using hops that, that we have on hand and also trying to find a flavor. Also uh, hops that, that don't, uh, <laughs> you don't have to mortgage the, the brewery to afford either. Yep. And, and yeah. I, w- I also made a very conscious choice to you know, stay away from the Citra, stay away right, from Mosaic, right. which are beers, which are hops that are used, not just in our beers, but kind of everywhere. So, and really focusing on, I mean, those are three phenomenal hops that I think yeah, don't, yeah. Um, get as much attention anymore so it also differentiate uh, the beer from from some of the others in the market whether it's another west coast or or any other beer for that matter Um, and yeah they work great together and and in terms of how we use them a little bit differently like you know we really minimize the kind of the the 60 30 knockout hop additions and kind of just simplified the process because we 
we can accomplish the bitterness that we want with a single addition. Um, right. And then we could add the hops in the whirlpool and dry hop in a way that we've also become very comfortable with knowing exactly what we're going to get out of them, uh, whether that's a, an increase in bitterness as well as what compounds are going to follow through on the aromatic side. And then also knowing that um, with our yeast, what is going to happen for anything on the front end of fermentation to, and how that's going to kind of, I don't know, the synergy with, with the, the actual terminal dry hop um, allows us to really construct that beer that, you know, in its original form, it was bitter, clean with big tropical like citrus grapefruit note, and we can we can accomplish that, but still add um, another element of um, I don't know. It's it's like a hot. I wish we had some of that beer. So now <laughs> I want one. Um, Do you want to? We can pause for a second and go get some. I don't think want. I have anything no, here. Okay. But um, so being able to accomplish that big kind of hop bouquet on, on on a very nice. It's I don't want to say delicate because it's got some some. Um, um balls to it but uh it's it's great because i feel like that the final beer is, is clean drinkable um and uh stable too so it's you know two three months in it's tasting great which is another component of uh of brewing too with with that amount of hops in any beer is um always on the forefront of my mind at surly because we do we have to have our beers on a shelf for for three weeks or three months, excuse me. Out, yeah. uh, you know, across the, the the country, we're not national, but we're throughout the Midwest. So, we always think like a very small brewery, but we need to perform like a very large brewery. Um, and those two things are at odds with each other most of the time. Um, but when it comes to recipe development, I want to basically knock it out of the park the same as any of the small breweries around that are able to sell direct to customers. Sure. Um, what are we, some of, in terms of, stu- yeah, instead of in, for that stability piece, you know, what are some of those kind of key performance uh, indexes that, uh, that you all keep an eye on in order to make sure whether that's evaluating ingredients as they come in and making sure that you're putting the, th- putting things into this beer that are going to have the ability to go that kind of distance uh, and then through that production process in order to make sure that every piece of that technical puzzle as you're making the beer is not going to detract once it's packaged. Um, again, we have, a, we have a wonderful quality department here at Surly, so yeah. thank, thanks to those guys. Um, but yeah, we're, we're monitoring obviously everything that's coming in, looking at our malt COAs. Uh, everybody look at your malt COAs. That's a very important part of brewing. Um, so we're looking at our malt COAs, uh, making sure everything's in spec. And if not, um, this year, especially with um, kind of the, the crisis with, with, with barley, um, making sure that, that that's right and making tweaks to, to brewing process if we need to. Um, obviously, hop selection itself is critical to, to that part of the, the recipe and um, trying to get uh, consistent lots year after year uh, to make sure that as you switch from one lot of citra to another, it's going to taste the same. Uh, and then brewing-wise, like we, we look at everything. I mean, hot side, we're taking samples. We're, we're tracking fermentation. We're looking at yeast cell counts daily, looking at um, uh, pH, uh, obviously keeping an eye on water uh, quality. And then throughout uh, fermentation, we're taking um, quite a bit of samples, uh, A, just to make sure the yeast and fermentation is going well, and then also looking at micro. Uh, so our labs looking for any potential contamination uh, that could – come up and then packaging is really the critical point right like you can have a really really good beer but if you can't package it properly um doesn't matter right right um and most of that's related to to dissolved oxygen in your beer and there's a lot of uh 
emphasis on 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 brewer, brewers but i think the real rock stars of of the brewery are the packaging guys because um if they fuck your beer up you're fucked like it doesn't matter how well you brew it how <laughs> much true. how it's many true. hops you put in there if you can't get it right. in a can uh, and that can can't hold up on the shelf or bottle for that matter uh you're it doesn't matter at the finish line yeah so uh honestly our, our probably the most investment we've put in on uh the quality on on our side is is really making sure that uh, our equipment is is where it needs to be, and that our um, operators know how to troubleshoot in real time. So it's not just one guy that knows how to do it. Like anyone running that line knows, you know, what we're looking at. They're checking TPOs constantly throughout the run uh, on cans, and if it's out of spec, they stop and figure it out, and they do figure it out, which is awesome. So we're running usually sub 150 uh, ppm of O2, like. Uh, on all of our products at both facilities now, and that's that's kudos to uh, Levi, our, our packaging manager, and then his team to to keep that in spec because uh, the moment it leaves here, we really don't have any more control of it. Like, you know, our sales team does a great job of of keeping sure like codes or date codes are in spec uh, and getting stuff off off floors if it's not. But again, like once it's out there, we don't have a lot of control. And oxygen really is the biggest factor of of that beer from a quality perspective in my mind. You know? Sure, sure. And at the same time, we're, we're looking at cans. You know, zero. 30, 60, 90 days out in sensory panels, also in micro, and just making sure everything looks good. That influences even, you know, hop choice, right? I mean, yeah. there are certainly hops, and, and when you think about it from a production standpoint, you know, there are definitely some of those hops that w- will sustain a little bit better than others over that kind of time frame. Yeah, and, and hops, and, and just the, the, amount, the more hops you use, usually the less shelf-stable your beer is going to be, just because, right. like, the, all that vegetal material, um, and just, I mean... We have all smelled old hops. Like, sure, sure. Uh, like it's it's not great. So, um, really, oxygen is key. I think in a lot of that. But, um, but so, yeah, definitely, hop choice is, is important in that too. Yeah. Now, I'm gonna. Am I guessing here? But are you using a flowable hop product for bittering at the the start of uh, you know the the brew? We not for everything. Furious does use that for yeah. for bittering. Um, for control chaos for our new West Coast, we're just using uh, Warrior pellets uh, still for that. Okay. Um, and eventually we might switch that over. Um, so we, we kind of do a mix depending on the brand and and what we're looking at. Uh, we've got kind of like a set um, like package just for Furious because that's our flagship and that's our number one brand by far. So. Um, we use that 100% of the time, and other brands, it's kind of just dependent on on what we're trying to, to to achieve. Yeah, yeah. And then dry hopping, you do that with pellets, or do you, uh, you have any other techniques around that kind of thing? Uh, again, kind of depends on the beer for for control chaos. We're just using we're using pellets T90s for for that beer. Yeah. Um, we're doing that of our, our our large plant here that we're at. Uh, so we use. Um, a piece of equipment called a, a dry hopnik. We've got a Rolex brewery and Rolex and Amco have a dry hopnik. Uh, yeah. Some brewers are using those for dry hopping and for adding things like coffee. So you basically get a recirculation loop set up on the tank and um, there's kind of almost looks like a garbage disposal, like a maceration pump on the machine. Right. And you've got a big booster pump to really like boost your pressure, your head coming off the tank. So you basically suck hops into the, into the beer and get really good extraction. You can use less hops, obviously, than just dumping them in the top, which we do at our smaller brewery. Uh, it's just not possible here with our 600 barrel tanks. So that's moving the hops into the main tank then? Yeah, so you're basically okay. pushing the hops in uh, as, as you're recirculating it. And then once all the hops are in, you can just kind of uh, stop, you're good to go. So and it also helps with, you get some yeast in, in suspension for VDK uh, scrubbing as well, which is, is kind of a, um, 
you know, a fringe benefit of doing that too. Kind of speed up that process. Sure. But the other but thing with the that is the hops are not sitting self-contained in the in the vessel, putting beer through it, but leaving those hops in the vessel. They're actually moving through the main yeah, tank they, itself. Yeah, the hops do go, get put into the beer, so we're not okay. just recircling the beer through sure, the hops. Sure. The hops are basically getting injected into the beer. That makes sense. Um, and then when you run the centrifuge, it'll it'll take them. I've been talking about recirculating, you know, from on everything from pastry ingredients now to hops. <laughs> I think feel like I've had that conversation a whole bunch of times. There over the last five or six weeks. Um, but it's interesting that there are these shades of difference and different means Absolutely. by which these things, and some are high concentration infusions and, and extractions within the tank itself. You know, some are circulating through, but leaving ingredients in the tank, you know, through using screens yep. and filters to make sure that, uh, you know, flavors going through, but ingredients are staying input. And that, that's interesting that you are moving those back into the main tank, which certainly creates a different cleaning uh, process for you. But Absolutely. Uh, and it, it works really well. I had some concerns when we first started using it, if we're going to get more like kind of grassy vegetal notes just from a busting all the pellets up and putting them in line. But if, if anything, I feel like it's a cleaner hop profile and you can leave the beer on the hops less time as long as your, um, you know, VDK diacetyl is, is in control. Uh, that is one thing we've noticed, though, uh, with using this system, we see more hop creep than we would with um, our, our, our process at the other brewery. And I don't know if it's because of the that process or not, but... Um, it's, it's definitely been an issue with some brands and again it seems to be varietal based in terms of how much hop creep you're seeing but that's that's been a challenge uh, but thankfully it's we're aware of it um we just can see some um further attenuation than we maybe normally want to yeah. see in some of our brands but uh and and it's until you really start using uh some of the hop ones it it's hard to kind of predict some of that and and what to expect but how have you adjusted for that i mean are you uh are you looking at things like um you know, different, you know, altering the mash regimen in order to kind of adjust for, you know, what hop creep might do at the end, uh, you know, you know, to your finishing gravity. Yeah. I mean, control cast is a perfect example. It's a, the first time we brewed it, we had to let it sit, uh, I think in almost an, a full additional week, uh, because yeah. we, we saw a pretty, pretty big hop creep, pretty like, it's like a 1.5 Plato drop after dry hop, huh. after it was terminal. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've adjusted kind of the, mash regimen up front to try to just dry it out ahead of time because it's still kind of finished where we wanted it to because originally we thought it was going to be a little high at mm. finishing gravity and then we dry hopped and it dropped down so uh it, it's frustrating to be sure so we, we've adjusted the kind of the mash regimen a little bit to, to try to get it to dry out just in fermentation so you don't have like the uh dextrins available to continue to ferment um, right and that's helped definitely a lot uh exogenous enzymes uh you can use ahead of time um but you know it's 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 hard to really know because using Amarillo Cascade Chinook, I've never seen hop creep at those hops before. So yeah, I was actually stunned. Like, <laughs> and um, now you found it. You figured out how to get some. Yeah, part of me is is curious. I saw a paper on this, and it's something I actually meant to, to ask Tom Shellhammer when he was here earlier this week about um, kilning temperatures because I think there could be a strong correlation with lower kilning temperatures, which uh, folks in the craft brewing industry have been um, asking for for years, if that's actually preserving some of the enz enzymatic activity in, in, in hops, leading to more hop creep, yeah. uh, which is, be, it, it's funny because it's kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. We're getting more aromatics, but we're seeing, um, you know, further attenuation that we may want sure. to. Uh, Getting some drier beers out of it yes. that may not be as juicy. And, yes. uh, yeah. So I don't remember who wrote that paper. I apologize. But uh, that really struck a note. It's like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, we all know at higher temperatures, enzymes are going to be uh, – 
be natured. So I, I'm curious to see if, if uh, as we continue the, the trend of, of pushing our um, suppliers and farmers to, to kill at lower temperatures to, to preserve some of those aromatic compounds, if we're actually uh, also going to see an increase in, in hop creep potential kind of across the board in, in our hop uh, varietals. It's a funny thing. You know, you change one variable and now every yeah, you know, a, your recipes are going to have to change yeah, in order to adjust for those butterfly things. effect. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, it, it's interesting, though, because you don't see it in every brand. There's like huh. brands like Furious. We haven't messed with that at all. And yeah. it's 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 like clockwork. Like it finishes exactly where it needs to be. And it's got a pretty big dry hop and it's got Amarillo. It's got Cascade. <laughs> so uh, what the hell? Yeah, um, yeah. So it's it's what well, thankfully because that uh, that's a beer I wouldn't want to attenuate any further than it is. But it, it's finishing it closer to four Plato as well. So there's still some yeah. potential dextrins there that could be degraded by any any additional enzymatic activity. So it's it's curious. So we we've kind of got control chaos figured out on the fermentation side, but that was kind of a, a wrench I didn't expect. Like I expect to see hop creep in some of like the the big you know, juicy IPAs we're making with things like Sabro, you know, some of the newer uh, uh, hops, but um, I didn't expect to see it there. So it's interesting and it kind of keeps us on our, on our toes, I guess. But again, thankful we've got the lab to, to measure those things. So you're not crashing beers before uh, they're ready to be crashed uh, with potential, you know, diacetyl bombs down the road or God forbid additional fermentation. So um, again, thankful we're able to actually see that and, and, and be able to pivot. So what do you think is the mo- the the biggest differ- differentiating factor, you know, with something like controlled chaos? Because clearly there's some overlap in terms of hops that are in the beer. You know, you're gonna you're using the same yeast. It's the water is the same. You know, like what are those what are those key points of differentiation in this new school approach to West Coast IPA versus old school? I think it's got a little bit more of that kind of the the juicy component, like whereas old school West Coast is more like just straight up citrus grapefruit. Um, I think even with, you know, kind of using the the same kind of hops we would have used back in the day, like uh, I think just the way we would manipulate it and when we're adding them and at what ratios that we're just getting a little bit more of a juicy note uh, in our uh, modern day West Coast. Um, I think we're also you know, looking at just a little because bit of less those bitterness. whirlpool additions and yeah. And just kind of understanding like, are you dry hopping during fermentation on the, on the newer ones too? Or not on that you, one, okay. but I think it being terminal being, uh, and using the equipment that we've got, it just, it gets a little bit more kind of those tropical notes. And I think there's a little bit less bitterness too. Like we didn't go quite as hardcore with brands. Like we used to like overrated, which was a pretty, pretty bitter IPA. Yeah. I think that, People are coming back around to to bitter, but not quite to the extent that they used sure, to. So, sure. I think just cutting bitterness uh, a little bit uh, also accentuates some more of the, the actual fruit notes and makes it a little more palatable, a little less pithy uh, than some of the more classic uh, versions of West Coast. Um, so, as people kind of transition uh, back from uh, maybe drinking more hazies to get back to more West Coast, it's I think uh, very approachable. And for folks that aren't familiar with that style too, I think it's a little bit more approachable than some of the, like the the enamel. Sure. strippers of the past you can have uh, maybe a perceived 55 ibu yeah. west coast ipa rather than the 80 plus that you might have had uh, you know exactly in that other other realm that's really interesting um you know and is there any other is there something to the selection of within that variety do you select with a different flavor profile in mind uh, knowing that this might go into this slightly slightly juicy uh, more fruity uh, you know forward west coast ipa 
I mean, it's just kind of part of the brand development. I mean, if that yeah. that's kind of what we talked about initially when just kind of conceiving Do you have lots, the beer. You know, of, of Amarillo that are earmarked no. for different. Uh, no, or, no, yeah. we're, we're still selecting everything yeah. kind of it, for selection for hops themselves. I mean, we're we're really focused more on year to year consistency because right. um, we've we've got like the the analysis of the hops and our sensory, and we kind of just keep that rolling year to year. So when we go back to selection, we can review. You know, what did we pick the last three years? Um, and our suppliers are getting better and better and better at giving us they know you know, your a lot spec more now and analytics. so they can yeah. they can look at what they have that's within the kind of spec that you tend to like exactly. and make sure that your selection is more nuanced and you know at the end of the day like it's it's hard because there's kind of the philosophy of i always pick the best hop on the table yeah or i always pick the the one that most or the best represents uh, the flavor profile that we expect from that hop and those those two things kind of can be at odds sometimes like there might be a lot of of citra on the table i think is just amazing and really really pops but it's not quite what we use um in our day-to-day so i might actually pass on that and i think some brewers would say you're crazy for doing that but <laughs> sure, um sure you know it's it's one thing if you're if you're just doing one-off batches but we've got you know our, our legacy brands like furious um that we need to make sure that that flavor profile doesn't change year over year um you know i wish we had the luxury of, of winemakers and had vintages um and it's it's a different way of approaching brewing but uh, but here we're really focused on consistency and that being said it's it's fun to find some of those interesting new hops where we will pick uh if, if we don't really know how we're going to use it yet you can just go straight for like the the best and get it get a few pallets and then use it throughout the year in, in, in kind of one-off brands or maybe in a variety pack or, or seasonal brand but there's definitely um specific hops that we got to make sure uh, are aligned with kind of what we used in the past sure sure let's uh let's back out of this a little bit and look yeah. at the the bigger picture what's what's next on the horizon you know the uh the craft beer world has a constant need for new you all have to balance that with the learning that you are engaging in that to making making these beers so that they will last on a shelf where most people most of your customers are going to find them you know and so there's this this push and pull in what you do of being innovative you mentioned you've got a seven barrel uh, r&d brew house coming so that you can get into more more taproom stuff that uh, won't have to go out there into distribution, but that'll allow you to, to, to toy with some new ideas. Um, what are what are some of those places and spaces that uh, that you want to explore? Um, you know, as you move forward here, um, that's, that's a great question. It, it's hard because there's, um, there's like what I want to do, and there's what the, what our customer wants us to do. Sure, sure. Uh, it's a conversation that um, Bill Manley, our, our VP of Brand Development, have constantly because. We want to stay kind of on the forefront. Obviously, we need to be profitable. We need to make sure that we're making the right decisions. And you know, the world out there is is changing. And when like people the, say profitable, I know it also always gets a bad rap. But to me, profitable means people like what you're selling. Like it's a it's a validation that consumers are responding to what you're making, and that's a it's a good thing. Absolutely, and it means that the the people we have employed here are going to stay employed. Like that's sure, you know sure. that's my number one concern. Is like I don't. I don't want to make decisions that's going to jeopardize my employees like that ultimately is the last thing I want to do. So, right. um, and, and the market's changing, right? Like we've seen what's happened with, with seltzer, with kind of RTDs and, and alternative malt beverages. And that's, that's a world that surely has not played in. And, you know, we've yeah. made conscious decisions not to, and it's something that we're always kind of 
asking ourselves is, do we need to go down that road? And that's a very, very strong possibility that we'll branch out into, into products that aren't beer. Um, but if we do that, we'll, we'll do it with, with, you know, strong intent. I always say that if we're going to go and make something, we're going to make sure it's the best to market might not be the first to market. Uh, but we're going to do it as best as possible and make sure that that uh, product's going to be awesome. And, uh, and from a quality and stability standpoint, also, um, be successful. So it's the old Apple philosophy. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be the first MP3 player, but you need to be the best. Exactly. And you can own the market when you do that. So, so it's hard. I mean, personally, like I love to kind of, uh, just kind of keep looking for, for new ingredients. I mean, this other half beer is a perfect example. It's like working with some of the people that are at the forefront of technology from, you know, the East side, from, you know, the, uh, stuff Joss is doing with Phantasma. It's just, it's weird and cool and it's it's fun to play around with and and really push the envelope of of brewing um and i think using that new r&d system um on a very small scale hopefully to have effects that ripple up to our large scale production whether it's using uh different yeast strains to achieve flavor profiles using less hops i mean that's not just a cool um uh, thing to do it's also potentially something that uh, increases our profitability and increases our stability in the beer too. The less hops you use, typically the beer is a little bit more stable. Also, just like always looking at new equipment, we also just got a new like a cross-flow membrane filtration uh, unit from Pentair that we installed to try to get a little bit more stability in our big brands like Furious. So, kind of, I'm kind of jumping around from point to point right now because my head's <laughs> kind of all over the place. Sure, like, sure. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, water treatment. I'd love to see more control on that yeah. side of the process. Cause right now we're, we're doing very little. And I think that's an area that, um, we could really, uh, build and expand on to, um, you know, affect the beer from everything from process all the way through to flavor and stability. And, you know, deaerated water is something that this brewery also doesn't have that those two things kind of get, Combined and, and increase our, our throughput and also our, our kind of capability here on a, a technological side. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, my, my brain's a little bit scattered in terms of what's next because there's so many cool ideas and so That's many fun true. things from, you know, the creative side in terms of beers and also on the process side in terms of equipment and, and just improving, you know, continual quality over and over over time you have a methodical but also yes a creative approach yeah. and uh, it's interesting to see those two things and you know in balance or in, in some sort of tension with you that's uh, yeah. that's pretty cool we normally you know finish the podcast talking about uh you know long-term big picture that's probably a question for for omar you know more than it is for you but you know from your perspective what, what do you where do you see surly in the next few years that's a great question and yeah it's uh if you if you if you know, let me know. No, um, we're, <laughs> yeah. the pandemic's yeah. just been such a clusterfuck, man. It's it's like we had basically hit pause on everything, and right. we've, we've just been struggling to survive, like everybody else. And the whole new focus has been, let's get to tomorrow. Let's make sure our employees are still here. Um, whether that's through everything we've done, you know, we've been lucky to get some assistance from the government to to keep jobs and keep uh, beer uh, flowing. And now that we're kind of coming out of it you kind of hit the reset button again and kind of a breathe a sigh of relief, right? Like it seems like things are looking up uh, and I hope that's the case, uh, long-term and what's next is, you know, continuing to make great beer, improving quality here at the brewery. I think, um, 
we're throwing around some ideas of potentially doing some satellite locations. So sure. let's say a spot in Michigan um, oh. where we could, you know, be a, a local presence in a market that um, we feel has a lot of potential that we've got not just chain partners, but also some, some local uh, partners there that could benefit from that. We've got a cool pizza restaurant here at Surly, so it'd, it'd be an easy concept to kind of uh, fire up elsewhere with the little brew pub. I mean, we just bought that little seven barrel, and if we really like that, there's potential we could buy more of those and kind of put them in place and then also have kind of a uh you know place to to train folks here and, and kind of inoculate them with the surly culture if we're going to do that so that's 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 a potential we haven't pulled the trigger on any of those things sure, but it's sure. it's you know if we have a really good year and things continue to look up i think branching out and doing some of those would be uh would be pretty rad um yeah and be a lot of fun for us uh, on all fronts we have an awesome hospitality team so like combining that uh, and uh, a smaller scale somewhere else with the brewing uh, side of the the business, I think would be would be pretty cool. Um, you know, focusing on on our business here in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota is still by far our largest market, so doing everything we can to make sure we support the the uh, the scene here. Um, we're doing a little bit of work to try to improve the laws to give us a little bit more uh flexibility here i kind of mentioned it earlier but surly is one of five breweries in the united states that can't sell beer to customers direct uh so we're trying to get that law changed and that would be kind of a game changer um for us just to have that capability uh, right pretty much every brewer listening probably is able to sell at least a crowler <laughs> sure, or a growler sure. to someone and you know we used to do a festival called darkness day where we'd sell our darkness bottles to, cu- sure. to customers and i don't think folks realize that the way that worked is we actually sold the beer to our distributor. They sold it to Brooklyn Center, and they set up a municipal liquor store basically on site and sold all the beer. So we never really made money on that. And again, it's not it's not about uh, making money necessarily. It's more about just actually being able to you sell to your own beer with yeah. the you know ridiculous laws. I think you know I think that is one benefit of the pandemic in a in a weird sideline way yeah. is that we've realized that liberalizing laws about the way that we sell alcohol is not going to lead to some hedonistic uh, you know devolution of, of social society no. you know and it's we're it's, all we can handle this you know if, if breweries can want to sell beer directly there's still a world for distributors out there and they can still provide a service it's not a zero-sum yeah. thing it's not like if we can sell crawlers that like the liquor store down the street's not going to sell beer right. it's like we're all just going to sell more beer and it's going to create more jobs more revenue and yeah, it's, it's kind of silly. We've got this destination brewery here. Um, we would love to hold Darkness Day uh, at our brewery and be able to sell bottles to our customers and have a good time. And in no way would I think that would negatively affect any of our other partners. And I respect that um, those folks, they do a lot of work for us selling our beer, but I honestly don't see any 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 down side to that so hopefully we'll be able to have some of those experiences happen in the future uh things are looking actually pretty bright uh in 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 the session right now so we'll see what happens that's great that's great well, i think that's a good place to bring this to a close for nearly 30 years gnd chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on bsg and rar malting company are the home of fossil free malt think outside the puree box with old orchards craft concentrate blends Arrived as Craft Beer's most trusted point of sale system. Put SS Brewtex advances to work in your brew house, and the Mettler Toledo InPro 8630i is your perfect helping hand. Of course, if you enjoy this podcast every week, we would love your support. Go to beerandbring.com, click on that subscribe button. 
you know, if you do, you'll be able to watch or at certain subscription tiers, like our all access subscription, you'll be able to watch great classes like one upcoming with Laura Burns of Omega Yeast, which we were talking about earlier on. And of course, once again, if you're planning a brewery, head over to breweryworkshop.com for information on our next workshop in Portland, Oregon, this July. Ben, if people want to learn more about Surly, where uh, where do they find that or where do they find you? Uh, go on surlybrewing.com. Uh, you can find us on, on Instagram uh, as well if you want to see some pictures of our, our wonderful brewery and our, uh, on our beers. Um, it truly is a beautiful brewery and beer hall and facility here i mean it, it really it's just spectacular and we were here a couple nights ago for uh for an industry party food's phenomenal i mean the entire experience and service is great that's that's great to hear and then we, we we put pretty much the same emphasis on on quality on the food and hospitality side that we do as the beer so it, it's it's a great experience i guess the the best way to to get to know Cyril is just to come to minneapolis and come visit us and say hi well, you know what? I do that every year, and I'll be looking forward to doing it again next year. Uh, ben Smith, head brewer for Surly, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, cheers, man. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.